Christians are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. Christians are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. That's you. <clears throat> it's a saying that uh, maybe you've heard before. But you know what? According to the Bible, those words are absolutely not true. Not true. In fact, it is just the opposite that is true. To be of any earthly good, you Christian, to be of any earthly good, Christians need to be heavenly minded. By heavenly minded, I mean being concerned with the things of the Lord of heaven. And it is when we are concerned with the things of God that we will be at our greatest earthly good, prepared to live in an effective way to the praise of God's glory. And we see this in our passage today from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 22. I invite you to turn there with me now if you are uh, using the Bibles there in front of you. It can be found on page 1014. 1 Peter chapter 1, page 1014. <clears throat> And the Apostle Paul, he wrote this letter in the early 60s AD to persecuted Christians who were spread out in the region that is now known today as Turkey. And he writes to them wanting their hope to be established in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants them to hope in God and what God had done for them in Christ, in his death on the cross for sins, in his resurrection from the dead, and then also in his return. As the Bible says, he certainly will come again. Now we today, while we may not suffer the same ways in which these Christians did, we too know that this world is not the way it is supposed to be, right? I mean, you don't have to suffer persecution to know this. And as we hope in Christ the King to establish his righteousness, his justice, his rule and his reign on earth, I mean, how exactly are we supposed to live our lives here and now that best glorifies him? How are we to be heavenly minded and of greatest earthly good. Well, Peter here helps us do this. Look there, First Peter 1, verses 13 to 21. I'll go ahead and read that now. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. How are we to be of greatest earthly good? Well, we see here in the very beginning, and this is point number one, if you're taking notes, this is point number one. We are of greatest earthly good by setting our hope on the Lord. Heavenly minded. Be heavenly minded. That's verse 13. By setting our hope on the Lord. This is point number one. You know, in previous verses in Peter, if you want, you can go ahead and skim them as I talk now. We've been looking about, <clears throat> we've been talking about and looking at the hope that is to come in the return of Jesus Christ. So friends, if you're visiting as non-Christians, the Bible says that Jesus Christ came to live a righteous life. He was sent by the Father. He is the God-man to live a righteous life. The life that we could not live. And then he died on the cross for the sins of all who would repent of their sins and believe. He got up from the dead showing that payment has been made. See, so where we as God's creation should have paid the debt, death, because we sinned, Jesus dies in our place. So he gets up from the dead three days later showing that payment has been made for everyone who turns and believes. You know, you don't have to die in front of God. Jesus dies for you. And then he ascends into heaven. This is what the book of Acts says. He ascends into heaven. The Bible says that just as Christ went up, so he will come back. Think kingdom here. God, Jesus Christ, he ascends into heaven and he will return and establish his kingdom on earth. And he's already doing that amongst our own selves here. If you're Christians, you know, he changes our hearts so that we love the king. We obey the laws of the king. One day the king is going to return. And Peter here, he addresses Christians that lives 
live in between those two comings. So you have the coming of Christ, then you have the church age, and then you have his return. So we actually find ourselves identifying with the Christians that Peter is writing to here. We live in between the two arrivals of Jesus Christ here. So what he says to them, he says to us. So what exactly are we to do as we wait for the return of Jesus? He says there in 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here again, you see this grace theme again that we've seen in previous weeks. I mean, you think, just think back, actually flip over to 110. We're here looking at this theme of grace that Peter brings up again and again. Peter wants the Christians to know that this grace was set aside for them from eternity past. The prophets of old prophesied about the grace that was to be yours hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago for us. That grace was set aside for you, Christian. In 512, go ahead and turn there. <clears throat> so there we got grace in eternity past before time. In 512, you have God's grace is what saved sinners are standing in now. So if you're a Christian, that grace was not only set aside for you, you stand in it now. And then our verse 113 says God's grace is what is to come in the arrival of Jesus. So we're kind of like enveloped in God's grace. And that's what Peter wants them to know. He says hope in the grace that is to come, even in the midst of suffering and persecution. And notice too that Peter doesn't just say, you know, put some of your hope in the grace of God. And the rest, you know, you lump it into finances and building your own earthly empire. No, he says set your hope fully on the grace completely on the grace this is this all-in type of mentality where we are launching the anchor of our souls into heaven on jesus christ where he is and where and when he will come and bring that grace to us the obvious question though is how exactly do we go about doing that so in daily stuff of life how exactly do you launch your own anchor uh into hoping into this jesus christ i think two mistakes are made in relation to how we as Christians can live our lives in the now, waiting for the then. Two mistakes are made. Number one, we might take no stand for God at all. You know, we think, oh, Christ got it covered. You know, I don't need to take a stand for Jesus. Uh, he's, he's, he's got everything. You know, he's got my back. I can just live the way I want to in the world. That's, that's uh, the first mistake, you know, take no stand. The second one is take a stand for the Lord, but withdraw from the world. Take a stand but withdraw from the world. So let's, let's address these two. First is take no stand at all. Uh, really, I mean, if, Christian, if, if none of your friends and none of your family members know that you're a Christian, that's probably you. You're probably taking no stand. Really, you become like the world. You know, Jesus is coming back. The kingdom is all good. I can just chill out. Maybe even check out spiritually. You know, maybe your lives are to some, actually, uh, maybe your public lives are marked by this apathy towards the things of God. You are a cultural chameleon adapting to everything around you, never taking any stand for righteousness. The second one is you take a stand and then you withdraw from the world. Uh, you know, some folks, they might take a stand on everything, but they do it only amongst the people that they are with, their fellow Christians. And they never, they're never they not taking the stand in front of other people. Uh, we saw this a little bit in the early 20th century in a group of Christians and churches called fundamentalists. And I'm not talking about Christians who believe in the fundamental doctrines of the faith like the Trinity, like the God-man Jesus Christ. I'm talking about fundamentalists who withdrew from culture because of what the culture was doing to the church. You know, you had, let's say, the push of evolution, for example. Oh, the culture is so bad, so let's withdraw from the culture. Um, and so what you saw is you saw them distance them. They distanced themselves from others. Uh, and they kind of gathered in their own, you know, as some people call it a holy huddle, never engaging the world. But both of those stances, both of these stances actually produce the same negative result. Same negative result. That is, people... Never seeing the glories of Jesus Christ. Other people never seeing the glories of Jesus Christ. If you take no stand, you have no conviction. Or at least any conviction worth standing for. You never show people around you the righteousness of God. The patience of God in the midst of suffering. The love of God. 
that just continues to go on and go on and go on, even in the face of sin. You never show people his mercy. We just go on with every single attribute. You take no stand for anything that God is, and so nobody sees God. For those who stand but don't engage. I mean, we got to realize here that God calls us to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. I mean, what a failure an ambassador would be if they are sent to a to a nation, but yet they never engage in the nation. Uh, is you know these are the same problems. People never see the glories of Jesus Christ. And what Peter says here, let's just go to four nineteen. Turn to four nineteen. What Peter says confronts both of these errors. Go ahead and look there. Four nineteen. It's just one example in the book of Peter, First Peter. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And what's fascinating here is that he has he doesn't seem to say that people's suffering is going to go away. Remember, Jesus himself suffered. And we know the New Testament says, if you follow Jesus, you too can expect suffering for the faith. And he just says, the, the, the presumption is you just go on suffering, but suffer as a Christian. So everybody around you sees. To those who take no stand, he says, continue doing good. He says right there, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to his faithful creator while doing good. Presumably do good on, for the sake of Jesus Christ on behalf of God, the Lord, the Holy Lord. To the non-engagers, so if you are a non-engager, you know, you want to withdraw from the world. Here it says, you know, they are to do good to those who mistreat you, right? That's the presumption here, and it says stated specifically in 2, 18 and 19. Go ahead and turn there. 2, 18 and 19. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. So you're just talking to a slave. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For... The reason is, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So they're supposed to suffer before the very people who persecute them. They're supposed to take a stand in front of the very eyes to the, of those who mistreat them. Peter tells them, he says, look, continue taking a stand for Jesus, even if that means suffering like Jesus did. Continue taking a stand before the very men who are causing you that very suffering. Now we're going to get into a lot of the practical in terms of how maybe even a suffering wife can uh, shine the love of Jesus Christ towards her husband. We're going to get there because Peter does. We're going to get to the slave's relationship to his unjust master. We're going to get there. But as Peter is transitioning us to the practical, he says, let's take care of the individual heart. He says, I want to make sure that your individual hearts are right, in the right position, to endure the suffering. So here he's going to help us look at the inner life of the soul as we hope in the grace that is to come. Uh, so the main thrust there is set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's point number one. Um, still under point number one, how exactly do we do this? How exactly do we do this? He says there, by, if you turn over to a passage, by, there in verse 13, uh, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. How do we set our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace that has come? It is by preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Literally, the phrase there, preparing your minds for action, can be translated, girding up the loins of your mind. Okay. Americans think that this phrase is more than a little awkward. Um, we think oftentimes, you know, what in the world does this mean? Uh, I think in my time in the Middle East, me and my family lived there for a few years in the city of Dubai. Uh, it's uh, right north, basically, uh, on the Arabian Peninsula. It is on the Arabian Peninsula. If you go north, it's uh, right, right below Iran. And um, the, the, the men, if you ever see Arab men dressed, they wear this long robe called a kundura. That goes all the way down to the ankles, oftentimes. <clears throat> and uh, underneath, you got pants. And if the situation called for it, let's say something bad were to happen and they needed to run, right? They have to actually hold on to their kundura. They got to hold on to their robe while they're running. 
Now, if you've ever sprinted while holding on to something, you know that it's really dangerous. I mean, some of you even fell in the last couple of weeks. Thank God you had hands to brace your fall. <clears throat> um, so you see how inconvenient it is to wear a long robe while running. So what he's calling them to do is to gird up the loins. Gird up the loins here. That's gather the robes and tuck them into your belt. So to Peter's first century hearers, that's what they had to do. They were wearing long robes. They were to gather them up and tuck them in the belt so that they could be ready for action at any given moment. By the way, um, you know, if you go on and search like pet tigers in Dubai or in the Arab world, you'll see men who are running from tigers in their house. You know, they got pet tigers holding on to their condors, and you're thinking like something bad is going to happen. So you can see a practical example there if you were to do that. Um. So you get the idea, right? They're, they're to be ready for action at any given moment. Preparing your minds for action, hope in the Lord. He also says, be sober-minded. Some of us, myself included, struggled with drunkenness at some point in time in our own lives. You can just think about the drunken mind. The drunken mind is unalert. It is unstable. It is unaware. It's numb to the things of the world. But Peter, though, he's not only saying that we should stay away from drunkenness. The sober mind, the Christian mind, is a mind that is alert and awake to the things of God. To Christ and his kingship, to his commands, to his desires, and then also to his return. And both of these ideas Jesus spoke to Peter of and the other disciples in Luke 12. You don't have to turn there, you can just listen. Listen to what Jesus himself says in Luke 12, 35 to 36. He says, let your loins stay girded. The ESV puts it, the translation that's in front of you says, um, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. There you get the idea of alertness. And be like men who are waiting for the master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So here the, the, the picture is that Christ's people, God's children, are to be standing at their posts at great attention ready to receive their king on any given moment's notice. So as we think about girding up the loins for action, as we think about dress, you know, we got to ask in terms of clothing, well, in terms of the mind, are you more like a Gucci mind or a Jesus mind? (laughs) If you want to set your hope on Christ, Peter says you think accurately and be alert in the mind. You know, we give ourselves to thinking accurately and alert, uh, living alertly about all sorts of things, right? If you're preparing for something big in the future, you want to think well about it. You know, let's say the older generation or any of you who might have children, you're thinking about, you know, if I were to die, like what would happen to my belongings? We want to leave something to our children, right? Or even how is it that you go about taking care of your parents in in their old age? You give yourself to thinking well about that. You think about legal documents. You go hire somebody. You pay them big money so that, so that everything is secure. Everything is safe. You want to think well about those things. To those of you who might be preparing to get married. You want to think well about your wedding. Hopefully, I pray that you are thinking even more well about your marriage. But you know, you gals, you think about all the beautiful things that could be. Your beautiful dress. You envision everything that could happen. You pour over the wedding magazines of everything that you think is beautiful. And you dudes, you're thinking about exactly how much money this thing is going to cost. You're thinking about how you're going to pay it off and where the money is going to come up. But you think well about it. So if you are responsible, you certainly will not live in la-la land. You will, you will, if you want to be responsible, you know what being alert is about all sorts of things in your life. Well, this thinking accurately, alertly, is supposed to happen in our hoping. The same type of thinking, Peter says, should guide us as well as we wait for the king's return. So thinking well about the facts of Jesus Christ, the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ, everything that we hope in. So what will happen on that day? Who exactly is returning? What does his return have to do with my particular life right here, right now? What is the salvation that he has won for me that he will bring finally to me at his return? These are the gospel truths that that are of first importance, Paul says. That here is supposed to guide our belief and guide our living. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 15 says as Paul writes about how important these truths are that should guide us, make us alert, 
Think accurately. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He's that first importance. The most important things are supposed to be guiding our lives here. Um, but what are we supposed to do with these truths? What are we supposed to do with these truths? I mean, certainly we are to believe in them, right? Jesus is a real human being. He wants us to believe on him. But according to our verse, did you notice that it's truth that guides our hope? It's amazing for us here as we see that maybe we give ourselves to being led by our hearts. Jesus says, no, let your heart be today. Today's idea of heart or emotions. Um, He says, let your emotions be guarded by your mind. Set your hope. How do we do that? By preparing our minds for action. This is reflected in Romans 15, 13. You can listen now, write down the reference and go look at it later. He says there, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the holy spirit you may abound in hope well how is it that we have joy how is it that we have peace how is it that we have hope well friends it is in believing truth these are gospel truths to be believed in and then they steer our whole entire being but it doesn't just stop there the gospel of jesus christ is supposed to push into our daily living our conduct. These are the gospel implications. Uh, we, see, we see this reflected in Philippians 1.27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So it's not just believing, dry believing or ascending the truth. It's actually letting those beliefs filter into the ways in which we live. Let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And we're going to see Peter lead us into this a little bit later in future verses. But I love how practical the gospel is. It is so functional. So if any of you guys are thinking like the gospel is not functional, it's not practical, it's just something we believe in, that we are supposed to live out our lives here, and it doesn't really have any bearing, this, the passages in the Bible, all of scripture, uh, you know, say that that is not true. The gospel is incredibly functional, so incredibly practical. If you noticed, this whole, impas- this whole passage from 13 to 21 started off with what word? It says, therefore... And what Peter has covered in verses 1 to 12 uh, are all the things that we Christians are to believe in because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything that has come before, all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ is he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. As he has given us an inheritance in himself. God guards us, he says, for uh, the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He cultivates the, the faith that he himself planted. He gives us Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins and this Christ will return He says, therefore, given all those truths, then set your hope. Given everything we believe, set your hope. Everything that has happened in the past, set your hope. The commands here to set your hope, I mean, notice, this is really important, comes after the conditions of salvation that are set by God. Another way to think about it, if you're interested in grammar, let's say, which might be one of you or something like that. The imperative to set your hope, the imperative to be holy, later on we're going to see the imperative to fear, comes after the indicative that you have been saved. You are saved through Jesus Christ, therefore do. God's grace is upon you, therefore you live in holiness. It's not the other way around. You start backwards and you end up living in legalism, trying to earn your own salvation. But this is absolutely against the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, as we seek to apply this, friends, uh, do you tend to the life of your mind? What does it look like for you guys to tend to the life of your mind? What does it look like for you guys to gird up the loins of your mind and being sober-minded? As I said before, you know, we tend to think so well about so many things in life. Some of you even have apps on your phone to help you think well about your life. Apps to think well about your finances. Um, one of my friends, he introduced me to this app that shows you it's this, this money wealth aggregator. It lets you calculate all of your, uh, net worth and your streams of income. And then it even tracks like how much it's going up and down real time. Let's say if you have any money, let's say you invest $5 into some stock, it actually tracks that for you. And, uh, he was saying, look, be careful because you could really track this thing and get obsessed with it as if your hope is ultimately in this stuff, right? Some of us know what that might be like. 
You have apps that tell you exactly how much money you have at any given point in time of your life. You've got apps about uh, the collection of shoes or how to, how to increase your collection of shoes. Apps that tell you when stuff's coming out. You've got Pinterest to help you think about the things you want to think about. It helps you make sure you think about the things you want to think about. You see something you like and you pin it on your board. Right? We tend to give ourselves to thinking so well, being so alert about so many things. But guys, if God was to look at the cork board of your own heart, would he see anything pinned, anything at all relating to his grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Of all the things that you have in front of you that you have pinned on the cork board of your life, how many things are pinned up about the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, what God see pinned? Any wonderings about the joy that we as Christians will have as we see Christ face to face? What do you see anything pinned about the rejoicing that the world, the entire world can have when it is liberated from sin and death? How about the vindication that's happening when God's martyrs are raised from the dead and God comes to carry out justice? How about the victory that Christians will have as we stand before Christ in his own righteousness to receive the crown of life to those who persevere? How about any pictures of the jubilation at the tens of thousands, tens of Tens of thousands singing the praises to God, worshiping God and the resurrection, uh, the resurrected lamb. Anything pinned about the sobriety, the, the solemn gratitude at the Lord's great judgment and the separation of the righteous and your friends who might reject the Lord. Is there anything? I'm guessing that the Lord would have to clear up a lot of the clutter of the world that you've had pinned on your heart to find things ultimately worthy of our eternal, everlasting hope. The wonderful thing, friends, is that uh, in God's grace, even when we don't know what we ought to think about or give ourselves to, or what ought to fill our minds and hearts, He helps us by pinning up the right things. I mean, isn't that exactly what Peter's doing in verses 1 to 12? That is, in fact, what he is doing. He's pinning up being born again. Because of his great mercy. He's pinning up the future inheritance that we have. Undefiled, unfading, imperishable. He's pinning up there so that you might live a sober life. Future judgment of those who reject Jesus. Friends, he's pinning up all of these things for us in his word. So that we learn to anticipate and grow in our love of those very things. Right? Isn't that what... In many ways, Pinterest seeks to do or something like this. It keeps in front of you the things that you yourself find valuable at this very time. All the the wants and desires that you have. Friends, that is exactly what Jesus is doing in the word of God. So continuing on application. If you want to grow in preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, friends, the Bible calls us to read the word of God. Listen to what our statement of faith says. And lots of statements of faith would agree with this. This comes from our own statement of faith. Just listen to what the word of God is. This is just a summary statement of what the word of God is from the Bible. This is what the statement says. We believe that the Holy Bible is written by men divinely inspired. Now listen to this. And is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. You imagine somebody bringing out a treasure chest. Oh, cracking the thing open, looking up at every single beautiful jewel. That's what the word of God is. Perfect treasure of heavenly instruction that it has God for its author salvation for its end and truth without any mixture of error for its matter that it reveals the principles by which god will judge us and therefore is and shall remain to the end of the world the true center of christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct creeds and opinions should be tried that's what we as members of first baptist church think the word of god really is so if it is a heavenly uh treasure chest of heavenly instruction then why wouldn't we give ourselves to looking at it every single day treasuring all the beautiful things in there you know one way that you can give yourself to reading the word is to read the passage for example listed on the back of your bulletin uh if you have your bulletin there and you pull that out you'll see there you know the passage that's going to be preached on next week we got 
Uh, November 27th, A.J. Dooley will be preaching Acts 4, verses 32 to 35. So why not give yourself to reading that passage you know, every single day, meditating on it, praying through it, working it into your soul, talking to other people about it, and that way it prepares your soul all the more to hear the preached word in the congregation. And then we got December 4, we got me preaching 1 Peter 2, verses 22 to 2, verse 10. So there you can give yourself once again, they're reading those types of things, thinking, learning to think about the things that God finds most excellent. And he helps you determine the excellent things from the lesser things, and therefore we learn to think accurately, well, and alertly about who this God is and what and the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, according to Peter, we must be heavenly-minded now, setting our hope in the grace that is to come. And you see here, so practically, that the gospel affects believing and hoping. And in our next point, we see that it also affects daily living. It also affects daily living. Not only our minds, not only our hearts, but daily living. This brings us to our second point. Uh, Peter calls us to live holy like the Lord. Live holy like the Lord. Look at 14 to 17. I'll go ahead and read that again. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You see, the main thrust there is is in verse 15. As he who called you to be holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now, some people think that this holiness is just something people do, like just being good, just being moral. Uh, But if that's your view of holiness, it is a malnourished understanding of what holiness is. I mean, did you notice the root of the Christian's holiness? What is the root of Christian's holiness? Look at verses 15 to 16. It is not, first and foremost, a way of living that we just choose to follow. It is, in fact, a way of being that God himself is. It is a way of being that God himself is to be holy. It says there, be holy as he is holy. And we see this, we see the relationship. I mean, don't we? I mean, you know, just as the father is holy, so his children are to be holy. So keep in mind here that this is God's being that we're talking about. This is the root of our holiness, is the holiness of God himself. And from God's holiness, his character, comes holy actions. So for God himself to be holy means that he is always, he is forever good and perfect. That's in his character. Which means every action that he takes is always and forever good and righteous. And he advances the most excellent things to be desired. And as obedient children, it says, we are to take after him. I mean, we're certainly not to take after the world. If you look there in verse 14, he says there, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Former ignorance, he's talking about their Gentile life prior to becoming Christian. Their, their non-believing, their idolatrous lives. I mean, some of you guys know if you're converted later on in life, you follow all sorts of things. You follow all sorts of sinful desires. I mean, maybe even you actually bowed down to idols made of gold or silver. That's the ignorance there. Their former ignorance living according to their passions that he's talking about there. So when you hear the word ignorance... Some people might be tempted to say, oh, well, then my sin is excusable. This is a sin of ignorance. Therefore, it's excusable. God is not going to judge me. Well, it's fascinating here. The Bible says that someone's unbelief is due to their refusal to believe. Their ignorance is due to their own hardness of heart. Sin is never excusable before a holy God. Uh, God, according to 1 Peter 5, says, or Peter, according to 1 Peter 5, says that God will judge them in their ignorance even. I mean, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4.18. Here he speaks very clearly about the reason for somebody's ignorance. They're not knowing, their refusal to know. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Okay, well, we might say, oh, great, okay, I'm darkened. I got an excuse. I'm not going to be judged. Well, listen to what it says. It says it is due, quote, due to their hardness of heart. They don't believe because they choose not to believe. 
So instead of following after the world, the passions of our ignorance, we're supposed to take after our Heavenly Father. And here we have our pattern of holiness, and it is God himself. We saw that in verse 14, God is the Holy Father of his spiritual children, and so we are to take after him. In 123, we saw there that the Holy Father gave us new birth according to the word, so that we might live holy lives. In verse 2, it says there in the beginning of the letter that it says that God forms his people in the sanctification of the spirit. Uh, sanctification is a big word for holiness. The Holy Spirit makes God's people holy unto his name. And here this should remind us of Old Testament Israel, where God formed for himself a holy nation for his particular use. This is Peter's intention to remind the church that we are to be holy unto his name. And that's why he quotes directly from the Old Testament, Israel's experience in the desert. He says there, you shall be holy for I am holy. It's just straight out of Leviticus. So you see that the parallels between Old Testament Israel and then the church, just as Old Testament Israel were sojourners and exiles who were learning to trust in God who delivers them as they walked amongst a holy, unholy, hostile people. So it is with the church. We too are exiles learning to trust in God. You are an exile, friends, learning to trust in God in the face of trials of various kinds, hoping in the grace of God, in his promises and in his deliverance. So just like the Old Testament Israel, we are God's spiritual people. And you, friends, have right now an opportunity to display his glory in every aspect of your life to the watching world. That is why he says, be holy in all all every single aspect every single facet of your life be holy in all of your conduct imagine how hard this would have been to peter's hearers as they were suffering at the hands of other people and suffering unjustly in the face of persecution or prejudice or in the face of a hostile horrible emperor Peter still says, be holy in all of your conduct. I mean, friends, how would you respond? How would you respond if injustice is done to you? Would you respond like a child of your holy heavenly father who is patient? Who is just? Who has a heart of compassion and a heart attitude of forgiveness? Or would you respond more like a child of Satan? Revenge, anger, rage, hopelessness, as if God did not exist. You see what these situations challenge and test in us? They test us to see whether or not we actually believe the gospel in a way that translates into living in the gospel. Some of us are so good at talking about the gospel, but we stink at living in the gospel. But the situation here tests us to see whether or not we will actually live in the gospel, whether or not we are going to appropriate those truths into our lives, whether or not we're going to seek the teeth of our mind or sink the teeth of our minds and hearts into the gospel and have them permeate into every single area of our life. Every situation we are in, especially trials, God tests us to see whether or not we really want to embrace him. Embrace his gospel and all the implications that come from it. So in difficult times, whether you are being persecuted or not. I mean, haven't you guys wondered, is God good or not? Is he wise or not? Is God good, the good shepherd or not? Is God really going to tend to the faith which he himself planted? Is gain in the gospel greater than anything that can be lost for the gospel? Does God even really give a rip about me and even care? I mean, not only are we tested about whether or not we believe in who he is, but he tests us to see whether we love him for what he does and promises to do and will do. And so we're being tested to see whether or not we actually love holiness in every aspect in our lives, to see his holiness seep into every single aspect of our lives. I mean, friends, haven't you ever doubted like that in the face of suffering and trial? It seems like there are two main reactions to doubting. If you're familiar with doubting, it seems like there's two main reactions here. The first is to take situations into your own hands. Take situations into your own hands. We want to take situations in our own hands, thinking that we know best how to care for ourselves. 
In this, we reject God and his good character. I mean, so you turn over to 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. He says there, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. And we look at that when we reject God and his good character. We say, what in the world is this talking about? The mighty hand of God? God's hand is weak. Because I'm not being protected right now. There's no way that he's going to exalt me. Verse 7, ideally, he says, Peter says, casting all your cares and anxieties on him because he cares for you. And we say in our doubt, like, he cares for us? What kind of garbage is this? And so why would I ever want to cast my anxieties on him? Because he cannot deliver. We read 5 verse 10, for example, and we see the doubt so evident there. We know this. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Right? I mean, so for the Christian who's believing in that truth, they're like, yeah, let's, let's go. He's going to restore me. He's going to confirm me. He's going to strengthen me. He's going to establish my heart in his coming. But for those who suffer, there is no grace. God is not a God of all grace. God is a God of evil torment. There is no glory in Jesus Christ. He's not going to restore, confirm, strengthen, establish me. So I need to do it myself. We take matters into our own hands. Okay, so some of you guys are saying, okay, so if you're saying that that's not what we're supposed to do, not supposed to take things into our own hands, you know, so are we supposed to not care? Are we supposed to not care about all the sin of the world? Are we supposed to not care about all the injustice? All the violence, all the persecution, all the wrongdoing. I mean, if we are not supposed to take situations into our own hands, then we're supposed to not care. This is the second misconception, the second wrong reaction. But friends, Peter wants us to care. Believe it or not, Peter wants us to care. In fact, friends, to not care is to not be holy. To not care about the wrongdoing in the world is to not be holy. I mean, the Father in heaven, your Father in heaven, Christian, is zealous for his people. He cares. He cares about all the wrongs done against his people. He cares about all the sins committed against him. So much so that he sends Jesus Christ to die on the cross for the sins of all those who would repent and believe. I mean, he cares about all of these very things. He's also fixed a day when Jesus Christ is going to return to judge the wicked. And then in the, in the book of Revelation, it's so obvious that he cares because the suffering servants who have died, who have bled, the book of Revelation reminds us that his ears are always open to them. Peter wants us to care. You look there at 4 verse 5, chapter 4 verse 5. But, speaking of evildoers, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He says, look, those who suffer, those who persecute you, he says, God cares and know without a shadow of a doubt that God will judge them. You look at 4.17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. There he's talking about the suffering that they're experiencing. And if it begins with us, now he's switching to the measure of judgment of how, how sober this will be. He's switching here to this topic. What will be of the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You see how Peter wants us to actually care about judgment? We're supposed to care, but we're supposed to do so with faith anchored in Jesus Christ. Hope anchored in Jesus Christ and our souls trusting in the chief shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And that faith and that hope and that love and that rejoicing is to go with us no matter what journey is ahead of us. What is produced then when we are anchored in Jesus Christ is a holy faith in all of our conduct. You see how gospel truths animate holy living? They produce holy living, trusting in the grace of God that's going to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So heavenly mindedness enables us to do great earthly good as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. As we live out our holy lives in front of the whole entire world who are watching us. It said, Peter says, look, if we continue to live godly lives... We're going to tell everybody around us that God is worth trusting in. That we trust this holy Savior. Just as Jesus Christ trusted in God, so we can trust in the same manner. Okay, so number one, we are to set our minds on the return of Christ. 
Number two, we are to live holy as God is holy. Number three, we are to fear the Lord. If you're taking notes, this is point number three. We are to fear the Lord. This is verses 18 to 21. I'll go ahead and reread that. Well, just to give a little bit of context, he says there, look at 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Main point there is found in verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now you might be wondering... What exactly is the nature of this fear? It's a legitimate, good question. You know, are we supposed to be scared of God? I mean, is that what Peter wants of us? The answer is no. God does not want us living in terror. That, in many ways, would contradict First Peter here. Right? He's talking about this father-child language. Right? That's security. He's talking about the just judge. Right? That's security in his judgment. Uh, so he, he doesn't want us to live in fear of God. We know too that the Bible says that God lavishes his love upon us in Jesus Christ. So fear does not mean terror. Some also say, well, maybe this fear means reverence. But I'm sure we all know that there are some people who say that they revere the Lord. But what that amounts to is like, okay, I'm not going to get drunk. And I'm, just not, I'm not going to uh, really submit my lives to all of God's commands. You know, they, they, they refuse to murder people or something like that. But there's no awe in their worship of God, just sort of a dry assent, a doing, the things that are generally considered as moral. Friends, a fear here is a healthy fear. A fear here is a healthy fear. And we see, see what this fear is to be marked by from the rest of our passage. First, it's a healthy fear that recognizes that God is not only judge over them, but judge over me. It's a healthy fear that recognizes that God is not only judge over them, but judge over me. Now, I know some of you guys are trigger happy with righteous retribution. You read verse 17, and you, which says there, <clears throat> If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, right? you, you read that, and you think, yes, you better believe I'm going to call on God my father, who judges impartially, and God, you go judge them. And in our self-righteousness, in our lack of patience, in our lack of a forgiving heart, posture, we itch. We itch for God to deal with the sins of others while conveniently forgetting that God is still judge over us. Right? We want God to be, to be judge. We want God to judge other people's sins, but not our own. No doubt, it's, you know, he will assess their sins, the sins of their lives. No doubt. But this verse here reminds us that we should be concerned with our own accountability before God. Did you, do you sense here Peter's redirection of hearts? I mean, it's pretty amazing considering what the, the audience is going through. Maybe we might consider it. It might even seem a little bit insensitive. I mean, if, if, if they're being persecuted for the faith, perhaps struggling with vengeance and ungodly retribution, struggling to trust the wisdom of the Lord and his timing and judgment, right? The temptation is to be so focused on them. Just think back to when some wrong was done against you. Isn't the temptation to be focused on their wrongdoing? Focused on them. And then that gives birth to bitterness towards them, hatred towards them. But Peter says, hey, yes, I... Uh, you want them to fear God as judge. I hear you. God will no, will no doubt get to them. But you too are responsible to fear God in your own lives and in every single circumstance. Conduct yourselves with fear of God in your life. He is the God who judges impartially. So don't presume upon his grace. So you got to wonder, right? This is Peter Peter writing, you got to wonder if Peter had his own sins in mind when he feared God, when he feared man more than God. Remember when the little girl said, you were with Jesus, weren't you, at Jesus' crucifixion? 
He's fearing them. He knows that persecution is going to come. His Lord and Savior has been crucified. And here, he, he seems to side with, he seems to give in to sin right here. And yet he maybe, maybe is remembering when he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your own exile. Maybe he's thinking about his own sins, about how he did not fear God when he should have. Was Peter tempted to claim exemption from moral responsibility in the face of persecution? Was he tempted to say, I had no other choice and therefore I had to fear man? Was he tempted towards his own hostility and his own anger and vengeance towards the Romans and the Jews? I mean, Scripture doesn't say. But what Peter realizes here is that regardless of the situations one finds himself, herself, the focus should always be on honoring the Lord in every single situation. Knowing full well that God is indeed judge over them and judge over me. What is this fear? It's a fear that acknowledges God as judge over them and over me. Secondly, it's a healthy fear of God who saves in Christ alone. It's a healthy fear uh, of God who saves in Christ alone. I mean, salvation is exactly where he's getting to in verse, he gets to in verse, verses 18 and 19. Salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. Look there in 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What he seems, to me, what he seems to be comparing is, the, is an idol's inability to save to the Lord's ability and power to save. Verse 18, you have the things that cannot save. You got the perishable, things made of silver and gold. That is the stuff that idols are made of. But then in verse 8, 19, you have the imperishable, the effective, the, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, in Scripture, the impotency of idols is oftentimes compared to the potency and omnipotence of a sovereign God who saves. And God scathingly assesses the idols of man and the foolishness of men who believe in the idols. So, for example, in Isaiah 44, with great sarcasm, great sarcasm, God says, here he's, he's critiquing the idol makers and the idol worshipers. He says, okay, you strong man, you, you, you put your strength to form your so-called God. And one hammers it out with, uh, with uh, made of gold, let's say, and then the other one carves it. Right? They're putting their strength into it. You make your so-called great and powerful God. And then he says, and you take a piece of wood. And you make your God and you fall down before it. And you, and you worship it as the great and marvelous, powerful God. And then with the other half that you just, the stuff that you just used to make it, you use it to warm yourself. So who is more powerful here? You make these things and then you bow down to it. But then you go and use the same stuff that's used to make it and then you... Use that as if you are dependent upon it. So what exactly is going on here? Who, who is more powerful, you or the so-called God that you're talking about there? Another time, God through Isaiah says, okay, look, you, 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 make, you fashion yourself this, this uh, marvelous, all-powerful God, and yet you need to bolt it onto a table, lest your hip bump it and the thing falls down onto the ground. Like, how powerful is that if this is your God? I mean, here he's comparing the impotency of idols to the omnipotence of God to save. You can think back to the Exodus, right? We have Exodus echoes all over the place in First Peter. You have there where God, the God of heaven, in some ways comes to battle against the so-called gods of Egypt. You have Pharaoh who is seen as divine. You have the polytheism that was uh, represented there in Egypt. And so God moves to deliver and bring judgment against Pharaoh and all of his so-called gods. Peter says you weren't saved by, you were not delivered. You were not ransomed by these mutant powerless gods made of silver and gold. You were indeed ransomed by the Lord. You were bought by the Lord and the blood of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. Just think of the temptation to go back to other gods in the midst of your own trials. Maybe some of you might go back to physical gods. Most of you probably go back to heart idols. When you're facing difficulties and doubting God's care over you, didn't you just want to go back to your old ways for a little bit, go back to sin, to whatever you gave and attributed God's status to? 
You see how Peter's encouragement to fear the Lord spurs on holy living? He is the Father that we, that we trust in. He alone is the deliverer. He, in fact, is the righteous judge. And friends, he is the Savior. Jesus Christ bled for you. And in clinging to him, there is salvation. If you cling to anything else, there is condemnation. Again, we think back to the Exodus there. They were destroyed. The idols were destroyed. But those who trusted by faith in God were saved. And think about that. You know, did the idols ransom them from their sins? No, they were ransomed by the blood of Jesus, like that of a perfect lamb. Think Passover, where God's judgment passed over those who offered up the sacrifice of a perfect and spotless lamb. You see there, Peter's reaching all the way back into the Old Testament. As all of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed us to the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ that brought final reconciliation, real, full, final, free forgiveness between God and sinners. Hey friends, if you're, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, let's say you're exploring Christianity. Friends, all scripture tells of God's one plan to save sinners through the blood of his son. You see here for Peter, even though they're suffering, the fact that he brings up the blood of his son reveals how central the blood of Christ, the atonement is for those who believe in him. Where we should have died for our sin, sin against God, God sends Jesus to die in our very place to bear the wrath that we ourselves deserved. But he does so in effort to save everybody who would ever turn from their sin and believe on him. They are made right with God. They are adopted into his family they are made children of the great fathers they're forgiven of their sin and 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 then we're able to live in a way in which god designed for us to live hoping in this final inheritance you were ransomed he said it's the image of being bought back you know like we were enslaved and now we are free you see friends that god's grace in christ is the christian's hope we are talking about holy living and we're going to even more as we go on but god's grace is the Christian's hope, first and foremost. And just as Peter started with setting our hope uh, brought to us in the revelation of Jesus Christ, so he reminds Christians of God's grace in Christ from eternity past. You look there in verse 20. I'll read that. He, that is Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So again, non-Christian, this is what God has set aside for sinners who repent and believe. And friends, this grace in Jesus Christ, this hope, ultimate hope in Jesus Christ, who pays for our sins on the cross and who in fact is coming again to bring his rule and reign to bear on this evil and sinful world, Friends, this grace can be yours too. I know sometimes we want to get tripped up on the fact that he is judged, that he actually judges evildoers. But friends, we want God to rise from his throne and judge evildoers. And your emotions, I'm guessing, even in the face of the injustice that you yourself feel right now, testifies to the fact that it is good for there to be righteous judgment where God expresses displeasure. But friends, it's marvelous that in the cross we see God in his judgment moving to sinners with compassion, opening the door of salvation to those who repent and believe. Friends, let me encourage you, repent of your sin, call you to repent of your sin and believe on Jesus Christ. And keep in mind, friends, that not only is God judge, he is also loving father here in this passage. He is also the Savior. God, the Lord, Jesus Christ is the Savior who bleeds for those who love him. You see here we have this hope. We're supposed to set our hope on the grace that will come to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is supposed to inform our holy living as we live in the fear of God. This is the God that Christians worship, the God that we hope in. Being heavenly minded, we are in fact of greatest good here on earth. He is the loving father, right? So we can trust him to care for us. He tends to the hope, the hope that he himself planted. He is, in fact, the powerful savior. So we can thank him for saving us from our sins. And we can rejoice knowing that he's going to bring in full deliverance, final salvation. And we know, too, that he is the impartial judge. And we, therefore, are to live holy lives in the fear of God, entrusting ourselves 
and those who do wrong to us, to him who judges justly. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, what great hope we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that this hope really would affect the ways in which we live. And Lord, we know that the only way that that's going to happen is if you strengthen our faith, you strengthen our hope, our belief, our knowledge of all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we are not in the dark to find out what hope is or create our own hope. But Lord, we know that there is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would be our hope even in the midst of this world that we, where we experience injustice, where we experience being sinned against, and even where we sin against others and commit injustices against others. Lord, we thank you that we have forgiveness in Jesus Christ, and therefore we can come before your throne with great boldness, confessing our sin, and knowing the forgiveness that you desire to give us and have shown us in the cross of Jesus Christ. May we live holy lives in every aspect of our lives, living in the fear of you. In your name we pray. Amen.